I always find it delightful to come into the quiet here at the end of the day. This retreat is such an exercise in the flexibility of our hearts. You know, that this is an experience we don't have on an adult retreat here. That movement back and forth between the activity and the stillness, and then back to the activity and back to the stillness. There's a way in which it, it gives our hearts a really good workout, kind of like aerobic exercise, having to make those transitions. Because it's such a teaching for life in general, isn't it? Being able to make that movement, you know, being out there and having fun, excitement, activity, and then having to let that go. It's time for it to end. To just and to just let it go. Can we find that grace, that ease in our hearts? To just let it go when the time comes and come in here, come into the stillness, the quiet, the calm. Be there, and then when the time comes, to go back out there and plunge back into the activity. So this retreat really uh, offers that challenge to us. Can we let our hearts be so flexible, so soft, so at ease, that they can just move back and forth over those transition times? And can we take that back with us out into the world? This retreat in general tends to uh, make me reflect on the different ends of the spectrum of our practice as parents, as people living family life, living in the world. So much of it is like this, this movement between extremes. You know, we have this commitment to mindfulness, to cultivating the mind, calming the heart, and yet we have our families to raise, which demands a lot of energy, a lot of input, So we have to also make those transitions. And this year I was thinking in this respect about this very famous quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj, and probably most of you have heard it. It says, love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And we repeat this quote very often here even though it doesn't come from the Buddha's teachings, because it just so perfectly captures the essence of the Dharma, the Dharma of the human heart, the essence of the truth about our potential as human beings. This truth that it's possible to cultivate the kind of deep wisdom that sees through our everyday illusions, our illusions about who we are and what we are and what we're doing in this world and what our lives are about. The wisdom that sees through to the underlying truth that really we don't exist in the way that we usually think we do. And that at the very deepest level, there's no one here in this room full of people. Just empty phenomena rolling on, doing their thing, living their life. And that it's also possible at the same time to cultivate the kind of deep caring and compassion that sees into the preciousness of every moment of our lives, that feels powerfully the importance of every moment of suffering, every moment of joy. And that power of compassion 
and caring that moves us, that motivates us to act and to be a force for good in this extremely imperfect world of ours. And not only that, but that beyond just cultivating these qualities, we can actually hold both of them in our hearts at the same time. This is perhaps the amazing part of the equation. That in fact, we come to see with practice that these are really the same thing. Just different facets of the same thing, different faces of the human being that's awake, that's engaged. The face of love is the one that turns to the immediate experience in all of its particular details and demands, all of its messiness and confusion. And the face of wisdom is the one that turns to the timeless, the eternal, what's beyond all the details, beyond all the demands, beyond the messiness and the confusion. And there's no contradiction in that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we listen clearly with the ear of mindfulness, then we can hear both the voice of love and the voice of wisdom. And they're in harmony with each other, not dissonance. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. This basic idea very much informs how the Buddha presented his teachings and how they've come down to us over the years. There's the spirit of the middle path in this teaching, of not falling into extremes, not seeing things in black and white, that it has to be just one way or the other, that we can't make room for both of these facets of our lives at the same time. So the Buddha didn't encourage everyone to go off into the woods and you know, spend years in seclusion, alone in a cave, seeking enlightenment in complete isolation. Even for the communities of monks and nuns, you know, many of whom did and do spend long periods in isolation. The Buddha built in these really compelling safeguards to keep them connected, to keep them attached to the broader community. to make sure that those ties of mutual support and mutual engagement between the monastics and the lay community would remain strong. So first and foremost, you know, there's this rule about not allowing the monastics to feed themselves, which Pascal was explaining to the kids this morning. You know, this is a very compelling reason to stay connected. The Buddha made it basically impossible for the monastics to live in complete isolation. So they would need to associate themselves with a lay community just simply for sustenance, sustenance to meet their basic needs. And then teachings would be exchanged along with those requisites back and forth. Relationships would be built. And that face of kindness and compassion would be uh, built into the relationship so that the monastics just didn't go off in the direction of the wisdom teachings and neglect the human side of the practice. But the Buddha also clearly didn't just encourage everyone to devote themselves solely to the cultivation of love and compassion. That, that would be the other extreme. 
So over and over for all sorts of different people and all sorts of different life, life circumstances, he stressed again and again the importance of looking for that deeper truth beyond our everyday experience. And here at IMS, in this tradition, we picked up particularly on the teachings around mindfulness and insight as a way of accomplishing that. So if we look at the wisdom teachings in the Theravada tradition, they're really all about breaking down our ideas of ourselves, our ideas about who we are, what we are, so that we can see through them, see beyond them. And over and over again, the Buddha instructs us on how to deconstruct ourselves, how to take ourselves apart bit by bit, how to unpack ourselves, if you will, into our building blocks, our basic components, into the ingredients that make us up. And we can think of this as one definition of vipassana, you know, what we come here to cultivate, insight, which literally means seeing things in a different way. So learning to see ourselves as collections or collages or processes, the stream of thoughts, feelings, sensations, all flowing by moment after moment, linked only by karma, which is a very different way of how we usually think about ourselves. It's very different from our usual sense of ourselves as kind of concrete, enduring personalities. You know, that not that we stay exactly the same over time, but that there's this kind of massive, uh, what Mahasi Saida called this massive continuity, massive compactness, that we pack all of our experiences together in this way that makes them seem so solid. So Vipassana offers this alternative way of seeing ourselves, a different way, a very different way. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, recognized the need to find a way, to find an approach, to kind of pierce our sense of solidity, to puncture it, to break it up. And he offered us many different options on how to do this. So he offered us all of these different ways of carving up our experience into its components. There's the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, paying attention to body, feelings on the the pleasure-pain spectrum, mental states, and dhammas, the truths or deep teachings. And if we take all of these four foundations together as a whole, you know, if you add up all the pieces, then they just make up everything, everything that we can possibly experience in this human life, in this human form. We could take the teaching on the five aggregates, or the five aggregates of clinging. It's another scheme where the body, where the, um, the Buddha divided our experience up into five pieces. So in that one, there's the body, all of our physical experience, and feelings again, and then he divided up the, the mental realm into perceptions, mental states, and consciousness. So in that scheme, we get five slightly different pieces. But again, if you put them all together, it just comes out to everything everything that we can possibly experience. And the instruction is just to become aware of each piece, separately, distinctly. We could take the teaching on the six sense bases, so the five physical senses of touch, 
seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and then cognizing, as including the sense of the mind, everything that the mind can experience. So again, if we put that all together, it's just everything that we can experience in this human form. But the Buddha instructs us to take the pieces apart and to look at each one individually. And I could keep going on with these kinds of lists. There's the whole uh, discipline of the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, which is one of the three main branches of teachings in Buddhism, which gets down to a really minute level, you know, dividing up uh, 28 distinct physical phenomena, uh, 89 distinct mental phenomena, uh, 17 mind moments involved in each arising and passing away of a single phenomena, um, 24 possible causal links between different phenomena. You know, it really gets down into the dirt of the nitty gritties of you know, what are we actually made up of. But again, if you add it all up, it's just everything, everything that we can experience, a different way of breaking it down. It's like the Buddha was saying, you know, okay, here's one way that you can deconstruct yourself, four foundations of mindfulness. Oh, you don't like that one? Okay, I'll give you the five aggregates. Try that one. Don't like that one? Okay, here's another one, six sense bases. You know, he was very accommodating uh, for different audiences, for different individuals, offering them different schemes for deconstructing themselves. But he was very consistent and very insistent that this was the process we had to follow to arrive at deeper wisdom. He was very clear that somehow we have to find a way that works for us to start to break apart the building blocks of this experience that were so insistent in calling me, I, myself. So that we can hear that voice that says, I am nothing. Not in an unwholesome way. You know, some of us hear that voice that says, I am nothing, uh, in a way that we really don't need to hear anymore. We've had enough of that. But this is the voice that says it in a wise way, in a way that's suffused with love, suffused with compassion, suffused with deep understanding and acceptance, and suffused with everything that our hearts really long for and hold locked inside of them. When we come on an adult retreat here, or when we attend uh, meditation classes, maybe at our home community, we tend to hear a lot about these kinds of teachings. You know, those of you that have been practicing for a while, probably familiar with these basic lists, you know, all these lists that we use. And even if we don't mention it explicitly, it tends to be built in to how we introduce the meditation. You know, so we have this sequence where we maybe start with paying attention to the breath, move on to maybe sounds, other sensations in the body, pain. Gradually we bring in mental phenomena, thoughts, feelings, emotions. So we have this kind of systematic way of working through the list of all these different components. You know, even if we don't tell you, that's what we're doing. So it's implicit in the system. And those of you that have been practicing for a while are very probably very familiar with this approach. But lately, and especially in the context of this retreat, um, I've been thinking about what it might mean if we change things around a little bit in the equation, in this approach to practice. So what if maybe we say, um, love says you are everything, 
Wisdom says you are nothing. It puts a little bit of a different spin on that teaching. And yet if we accept the basic truth of the teaching, you know, that within each of us there's this dance, this harmony between emptiness and fullness, then it has to be true for others around us as well as for ourselves. It has to be true for those alive all around us as well as for the life within us. And maybe it might be part of our practice to recognize this, maybe to recognize it more explicitly than we're in the habit of doing. And we don't tend to talk about this, this outward aspect of the practice so much here or in other places where this, this practice is taught. But the reason I thought to talk about it here at this retreat is that it really seems so relevant for us, for this community as householders as parents, living this family life where we're in such intimate and regular contact with our other family members. You know, we may be practicing very diligently, looking for the deeper truth within ourselves, but it seems like family life almost demands that we turn our gaze outward as well and look for the deeper truth in those precious others that are right around us, day in and day out by our sides. Over about the past year, I've been um, attending a study group back in Washington, D.C., where I live, um, that's examining the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, we read it in the original text, which is not very long, it's maybe just a few pages. Um, We have a couple of different translations between us. And we just kind of go through it paragraph by paragraph, you know, reading uh, the text, reflecting on it, uh, sharing our thoughts on its meaning, how we incorporate it into our practice. And in the first, uh, maybe about the first nine or 10 months of this group, we managed to work our way through the whole sutta one time. So we look at it really quite in detail. And we've just started our second time through it. Um, Whenever I talk about the the foundations of mindfulness, I always say that it's the teaching that keeps on giving because it's it's really um, the, the foundation for everything we're doing here so to speak. It's a teaching that we come back to over and over again. Um, There's so much depth and richness in it that it really bears uh, repeated study. But there's this one instruction in it that pops up over and over again um, with regard to each form of mindfulness that's offered in that discourse. And it says, one abides contemplating internally or one abides contemplating externally or one abides contemplating both internally and externally. And the interesting thing about this instruction, or one of the interesting things about it, is that nobody seems to really know what it means. It's one of those teachings that's Uh, come down through the generations, and somewhere along the the way, the original meaning, whatever it might have been, uh, has kind of been obscured. 
Not that it's been uh, completely lost. You know, there's various commentaries, different teachers that have different ideas about the meaning, but there's not this kind of uh, warm, fuzzy consensus anymore about what it means, as opposed to other parts of the sutta, uh, which are relatively straightforward. And I can't help wondering if that's uh, because there has been such an emphasis on the internal portion of the practice, on formal practice and sitting and walking and attending to just the experience within this fathom-long body, which is undoubtedly an essential part of the practice. There's no, no doubt about that. But so I've gotten to thinking about what this instruction might mean. What does it mean to contemplate internally? What does it mean to contemplate externally? And what was considered so significant about this external contemplation that it should be repeated and stressed over and over again throughout the suttas, really, both here and in other places? One historical interpretation is that contemplating externally refers to employing uh, psychic powers to directly experience another person's uh, sense experience, to directly experience their body, their thoughts, their feelings. And it could be that that's what's intended, you know, I don't know. But I tend not to think so, because it would just take the whole direction of this teaching off on such a different tangent. The guidance in the four foundations overall is so practical, it's so down to earth at least when we consider how we apply it internally. So it's hard for me to believe that its external form would kind of head off into this really, you know, kind of supernatural direction. It just seems uh, inconsistent. So the interpretation that makes the most sense to me, and which is also the one that's offered in most of the commentaries, is that to contemplate externally probably just means to be mindful of experiences, phenomena in other people people outside of our own body. Which dovetails with this point that I was just making about learning to see the emptiness in others as well as in ourselves. So maybe this practice of contemplating externally was meant to lead us in this direction, to help us to round out our understanding and build on what we learn by all the internal contemplation that we do. So I want to offer a few of my thoughts on how the four foundations of mindfulness might be seen in this light, how we might engage in this kind of external contemplation. So the first foundation of mindfulness is about paying attention to the body. So how do we pay attention to the body externally and other people and other beings? When we pay attention internally, we just feel our bodies directly, which is fairly straightforward, although certainly not always easy. But when we pay attention externally, bringing mindfulness to other beings' bodies, other people's bodies, it's bound to involve a different kind of attention, you know, assuming that none of us here have access to our psychic powers yet. So it's bound to involve what we, what we might call physical empathy. You know how sometimes, you know, maybe we're watching a movie or a sporting event, there's a lot of action, 
And at some point, somebody gets a really good whack. You know, maybe we can even hear it, you know, whack in the shin, bonk on the head. And we have that kind of visceral, immediate response of, ugh. You know, we can almost feel it in our, in our own bodies. There's this kind of resonance between us, this kind of physical empathy. That's part of our capacity as human beings to connect with each other in that way, to feel that kind of sympathy, that kind of alignment with each other's physical experience. So we know what it feels like to get whacked, to get bonked. Or if not, maybe we can extrapolate, you know, we can get some sense of it. And if we're paying attention and we're emotionally invested, then our system just automatically has that sympathetic response. And we feel that experience in a certain way along with the other person. Especially in our families where there's so much physical intimacy and all of this emotional involvement as well. I think this kind of natural physical empathy is really readily available to most of us if we recognize it and if we remember to activate it, if we become aware of it. So it often happens automatically when there's some kind of dramatic event, like an accident or an illness. We can really feel it in our bodies, you know, say if our children are injured. My husband, uh, Chris, is prone to environmental allergies, as many of us are. And um, since we got up to Barrie here a few days ago, um, he's been suffering from one of the worst allergy attacks that I've ever seen him have to deal with. And when I'm with him, you know, if I pay attention, if I'm a little bit quiet, I find that I can really feel his discomfort, you know, in a way in my body. It's not in the same way that he's feeling it, obviously, but still there's, you know, I can feel a sense of heaviness along with him. You know, sometimes it even feels like my breath is not coming so easily. It's a little bit jagged. So at these times when we have this natural communion with each other, we can bring it into our mindfulness. We can make it an object of our practice. We can take those few moments or more when we have the time here and there to just rest in that sense of feeling each other's experience with them, which we might think of as a combination of attentiveness and resonance. We have to attend to notice the experience. And then we have to allow that resonance of feeling that arises quite naturally when we allow the space for it. And we can do this not only during difficult situations, but just as an extension of our, pra- our practice and family life. You know, there's so many times when we're close to each other, or when we're in physical contact with each other. And maybe we're not you know, directly interacting, at least not uh, intellectually. But we can remember to be aware of each other's bodies with mindfulness, keeping an eye out for the deeper truths there and to engage in this external contemplation. I found it particularly powerful um, just to connect with another person's breath, someone that I'm close to. And maybe you've done this too. I think it's very natural um, for those that have spent a lot of time sitting, you know, really getting to know our own breath. We tend to pick up on, on other people's breath around us. So it's very natural 
to tune into the breath as it moves through our loved ones when we're close to them. You know, this is one of the essential physical facts of all of our lives. The breath that moves through us, keeping us alive for a certain amount of time. So that's something that we can bring into our awareness, both in ourselves, in our formal practice, and in others when we're close to them. This is actually uh, my daughter Sylvia's favorite kind of meditation right now. You know, she's four. She's kind of getting the, to the point where she can bring a little consciousness to her own breath, but it's, it's a little borderline. But she loves to watch me breathe. <laughs> Some of you may have found this with your children. So we'll sit, you know, just quietly, and she'll watch my belly going up and down, you know, and just kind of be there with it. There's a, a sense of attentiveness and that responsiveness in her that is just naturally there at this point in her life. And I'll watch her little belly, you know, going up and down. And sometimes we'll breathe together, you know, coordinating our breaths a little bit. And it's just really a simple experience, a really um, fundamental experience. But there's a really uh, profound connection that comes out of it, a really deep connection that we both seem to feel from it, of just connecting with this very basic truth of our bodies, you know, beyond... Uh, this very complicated and intense emotional relationship we have. When we sit together, there's just this simple truth of two bodies breathing, and it can just be very simple. Other ways of attending to the body body that the Buddha recommended um, are noticing the postures and the activities of the body. So noticing when the body is sitting or when it's standing when it's moving around, or walking, or running, or eating, or playing, or washing hands, rolling around in the dirt. So maybe we're watching our child, you know, shooting hoops out on the driveway, or running around in the grass. And if we remember, we can switch gears from being in the story of our child. You know, what are they up to, and who are they with, and is everything okay? to just seeing that body as it is, for what it is. A collection of parts engaged in certain movements, moving through different postures, different actions. So we can take that moment to step back, to kind of step out of the story of who is my child, who are they in relationship to me, and just be aware of their simple physical reality, the physical truth of that moment. The Buddha also recommended that we become aware of the body as a collection of parts, which is what modern medicine also teaches us. Teaches us, you know, that it's made up of all these different tissues and organs, and to really take in how, you know, when these different parts are arranged in a certain way and they're operating in a certain way, then we call them collectively, you know, me or you, my spouse, my child. But when they come apart or they stop working, we don't call them that person anymore. We don't see them the same way, even though it's maybe exactly the same matter. So we all probably know that feeling, you know, when we're in the salon, the the hair that's still attached to our heads, you know, that's part of me. (laughs) But the hair 
that's down on the floor that just a second ago was attached to our heads, you know, that's definitely not me anymore. You know, where do we draw that line? Why do we make that division? Can we see the deeper truth of the matter, of the physical being, that it just is what it is? And that's true for us, and it's true for everyone we love, everyone that's important in our lives. There's a traditional list of the parts of the body that we're uh, supposed to attend to, the 32 parts of the body, which is hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bone, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, membranes, spleen, lungs, bowels, intestines, gorge, dung, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, snot, spittle, oil of the joints, and urine. (laughs) So, you know, this might not be biologically exactly the list that we would use these days, but you get the point. You know, the Buddha is really pointing us to be clear about what is the nature of the body. You know, what is this thing that we tend to think of as ourselves, or that we tend to think of as our child, our spouse, our friend, our mother, our father. This is the truth of our bodies. It's made up of this matter, organized in a certain way. And when we remember to notice this, you know, whether it's our own body or somebody else's body, it helps to bring us back into alignment with the truth of our existence, with the fragility of it, really, the vulnerability, the mortality of these bodies that carry us through life. So all of these ways of contemplating each other's bodies externally serve this dual purpose of revealing both the emptiness and the fullness in those around us. You know, on the one hand, becoming mindful of their physical building blocks and processes and activities can start to pierce through those ideas that we have of them as being solid, as being enduring, being personalities. So this is a doorway into the understanding of the truth of non-self that the Buddha was constantly talking about and urging on us. By contemplating the body internally in our own flesh, we can deconstruct our own mistaken sense of ourself. By contemplating the body externally in each other's flesh, we can deconstruct our mistaken sense of each other's being, each other's self. On the other hand, to be mindful of each other's bodies in this way requires an exquisite attentiveness, an exquisite attention to each other's experience. And this is the natural ground, the natural fertilizer for a deep sense of connection and love. It's really only when we truly see each other, not just look at each other, but really see each other with clarity, with understanding, with interest, with attention, that true love and understanding can actually arise. So in a way, this is really the greatest gift that we can give each other. It's the truest form of love. It's what we really all long for in our relationships, to be truly seen, to be deeply seen, profoundly seen. And when we look at each other with mindfulness, we can give this gift of love, even as we cultivate wisdom.
The second foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha taught is the realm of pleasure and pain, what we call vedana, which is sometimes translated as feeling or feelings, but it really refers to the pleasure-pain spectrum and every point along it, including neutrality or lack of strong feeling. And this is another area where we tend to have a sixth sense about each other, especially in our families, so no psychic powers are required. When we pay attention to those that we're close to, you know, we can so often tell what they're feeling. You know, this is really not a great stretch of heart or mind. It's an innate ability. You know, we can tell when there's pleasure. We can tell when there's pain. We can tell when there's boredom or interest or engagement. In some people, these feelings are really obvious. You know, there are those of us who kind of go through life with our heart on our sleeves. And even someone who we've just met, you know, can read this like a book. You know, they can really see what we're feeling. And others of us are more reserved. You know, it may take many years to get to know some of us before we can really pick up on those signals that show when there's pleasure, when there's pain, when there's enjoyment or displeasure. And in our intimate relationships, we have that time, if we need it, to get to know those signs and signals and the people around us, to get to be able to read each other's joy and pain. And if we remember, this is also something that we can bring into our mindfulness, into our awareness. The tendency in our relationships is to get fixated on the stories, you know, as in everything else. You know, why is our partner related? Why is our child sad? But the deeper truth there is just the simple fact, you know, as with the bodies, just the simple fact of the elation or the sadness. If we focus on the stories, then we lose our chance to really see and connect on this deeper level. And we lose the opportunity to resonate with each other on the level of that experience which is really the ground that compassion and sympathetic joy arise from. When we're fully aware, when we're fully present with another's pain, then compassion naturally arises. The heart just resonates. That's the dharma of the human heart. And when we're fully aware and fully present with another's joy, then the heart very naturally responds with sympathetic joy, what we call mudita, that's also a natural tendency of the human heart. And we teach these practices here, some, some of you I'm sure have done them, of deliberately cultivating the wise intention of compassion or sympathetic joy. And these are beautiful practices. But we can very often get preoccupied with trying to conjure up those feelings, you know, trying to kind of create the compassion, create the sympathetic joy or we can get preoccupied with why we can't, why they're not coming up. But the truth of them, the truth of their nature and how they arise is really so much simpler than that. It's just that when we truly see, when we truly open to another's feelings of pain or joy, then the response comes naturally. The heart resonates when we look, when we see. It's that opening, it's the full seeing that we really need to give our attention to, and not the forcing of the sympathy, not the forcing of the resonance. 
It's when we can't bring ourselves to fully look at each other's experience that the heart doesn't respond. It's when we're caught in denial or when we're just distracted or when we're wrapped up in our own agendas, our own concerns, that the heart doesn't perform its proper function. But when we bring in mindfulness and we see with clear eyes, it opens the doors to the heart. So this is another area where we can offer those closest to us the great gift of our attention and create space in our lives where we can let go of the stories a little bit for a little while and really feel each other's pleasure and pain and just bear witness to the truth of that experience. There's a verse uh, in the songs of the sons and daughters of the Buddha, the uh, enlightenment poems of the Buddha's disciples. It says, the seeing one sees both the one who sees and the one who doesn't. The one who doesn't see, sees neither. The seeing one sees both the one who sees and the one who doesn't. So this is a practice that we can bring in for both of us. The third foundation of mindfulness has to do with recognizing mental states, and in particular, seeing when painful, unhelpful states of mind are present and when they're not. These are the states of mind that we call the hindrances, the various forms of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are really the cause of all of our suffering in life, the root of it. And again, in the intimacy of our family relationships, this is something we may be able to see in each other. You know, it can often feel like when we can read each other's minds if we pay attention with those that we've known for a long time, close friends, lovers, children. Those of us with younger children usually have an easy time of this. So the anger, the craving, the restlessness, or whatever is going on is usually abundantly clear, you know, to the mother of a three-year-old <laughs> or anybody else with an earshot of the three-year-old. But even, you know, with our partners or with our older children who, you know, usually are a little bit more sophisticated than a three-year-old, you know, we can and we do learn to read their signs. So we often know just by a slight change in the face that there's anger present or fear or sadness or longing. So this is another place where we can set aside our stories about what's happening and try to connect with the actual experience of the moment. Really give our full attention to the truth of that emotional experience that we're witnessing. And if we've explored anger internally, then we know what that feels like. We know what the nature of that anger is. We can resonate with it. If we've explored longing internally, we know what that feels like. We can resonate with it. And when we see those around us in the grip of these difficult emotions, we can truly appreciate their experience. We can see that the anger in another is the same as the anger in me, or the sadness, or the fear, or the jealousy, or the grief. It's all the same for all of us. And even as we see the universality and impersonality of these difficult states, we can build that bond of deep understanding and trust between us. We can step away from reactions of 
blame or resentment and just see the truth of the moment for what it is. And maybe even see a way to do something skillful, something wholesome, and to help each other transform that difficult moment into something beautiful. So this is another of the great gifts of contemplating externally that we can give each other. So for all of these ways of contemplating with mindfulness externally, it's the firm foundation of our internal contemplation that allows us to recognize, empathize with, and understand what we see. And by extending our practice in this way, you know, maybe we can offer this dual gift, both to ourselves and to our families, of our internal wisdom coupled with our external attentiveness and responsiveness. This retreat here, this family retreat, in a way, is the ideal training ground for this approach to practice. It gives us this explicit opportunity to move back and forth between the internal and the external, to make those transitions, to make the heart flexible and responsive. It's a rare opportunity, and I hope that it will be a benefit to all of us. So let's sit for a moment. Love says, we are everything. Wisdom says, we are nothing. Between the two, our lives flow. Time for the next transition.